Good morning and welcome to episode 1509 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast on Fangraphs.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Meg Rowley of Fangraphs.com. Hello, Meg. Hello. Meg, we have a problem. Oh, no. A terrible thing has happened. I'm sorry to tell you this, but we were going to do an email show, uh-huh. and then and then I got today, just before we started recording, I got a cease and desist from a, a lawyer representing Mr. Ben Lindbergh. Uh-huh. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you this cease and desist order, okay? <laughs> To all hosts of Effectively Wild other than Ben Lindbergh, it has come to our attention that you intend to answer listener emails on an upcoming episode of Effectively Wild. Since roughly episode 391, when the Play Index segment was inaugurated, my client, Ben Lindbergh, has had the responsibility of selecting and reading listener emails for the show's hosts to answer. This longevity gives him sole and total ownership of email reading duties, as established by an appeals court ruling in Cepeda versus Cowles Magazines and Broadcasting, Inc. It is our position that the accounts and descriptions of these emails may not be disseminated without the express written consent of Mr. Lindbergh. Sincerely, Buddy Bam Bam Chuck Esquire. So we, so this is a problem. We are, as I understand this, we are allowed to answer emails, but we are not allowed to read the questions. And I thought that would be too confusing, too confusing. I thought maybe another, if we, maybe with a little more prep, I can make that bit work, but I don't think I can make it work. So instead, I have a different workaround, which is that we are going to answer emails, Okay. but these are emails that I wrote and sent to you only. Ben, ben has nothing to do with them. So, think we can make it work? Yeah. All right. I mean, I don't have to speed read a play-by-play of an old game that no human person who's alive has seen. This is an easier one. So, this is easier just by default. This is a simpler task. Exactly. Yeah. So, you might check your email inbox. Yeah. I think there's one there now. Oh, since zero minutes ago. <laughs> Hey, look at that. It's an email from one Sam Miller to one Meg Rowley. You know, we encourage Ben to go on vacation because, like, it's important for him as a human person. Yeah. And he'll live longer. And, you know, it's just, it's good. You got to recharge and spend time with people who aren't colleagues. But I always, I wonder if he has regrets sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) You think he, do you think he listens? this yeah okay. i goof i i think actually based on my conversations with our co-co-host that he quite enjoys listening to effectively wild when he is on vacation because he so really gets to just be a listener uh-huh. and he likes both of us very much but i i do wonder if he feels a little nervous mm-hmm. yeah yeah I don't so, think am, he does. so am i reading this email you're reading it okay I got an email today, Sam, from a guy named Sam Miller, mm-hmm. and I thought we could talk about it. So here's one of those emails. On Monday, Andy McCullough tweeted this. Greetings from Angels Camp, where Charles Barkley said, do not compare Otani to Bo Jackson. My first response was, no doy. How do you say no doy? Can you give a no doy line reading? A no doy. <laughs> Very nice. Who would compare Otani to Bo Jackson? It'd be like if Mike Trout had a 43-game hitting streak, and instead of saying, do not compare him to Joe DiMaggio, somebody was like, do not compare him to Ornell Hershey. Oral. Oh, Oral. my God. What did I just <laughs> I caught it too late. Ornell. Who's Ornell? Never been a human person named that. <laughs> You've been doing very well in this episode so far, and I have not been, so I'm going to take responsibility for that. 
Do not compare him to <laughs> Totally different accomplishment. But then I started thinking, is it? I know being a baseball pitcher and being a baseball hitter are both within the same sport, so we don't think of him as a two-sport star. But are these two roles not just as different as football player and baseball player? One is a target game. The other is a stick and ball game. One requires balance and precise repetition. The other requires speed and improvisation. One is largely solitary. The other is part of a team pursuit. One requires a superhuman elbow ligament. The other requires superhuman cognition. So pretend these are two different sports that pitching and hitting have never been merged into one league. Isn't it just as unlikely that a person would be born with the athletic skill set necessary to thrive in one of these sports as that they would be born with the skill sets necessary to thrive in both baseball and football, or even more unlikely, considering we have had three prominent two-sports stars during the 1990s alone, but then went an entire century between Babe Ruth and Shohei Otani. Great you, Sam. question. That's a great question. That was a good question. Smart yeah. guy, that, Sam. Okay, he, so should, uh, he should fire the actress playing him, but it's fine. So, all right, so if I read this right, it's basically <laughs> saying that Otani's two different skills are just as I kind of like non-overlapping as Bo Jackson's two sports skills were. Correct. So I read this as this is not simply a difference of degree, but of category. Mm. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wait. So, so Charles Barkley, I, what do you, what is Charles Barkley? How did you read him saying, do not compare Otani to Bo Jackson? Do you think he was merely saying that Otani is not as good as Bo Jackson was? Or that he's saying that what Otani is doing is not as hard as Bo Jackson was? I think that there is... I think it's the second one. Yeah. Because it would be odd to comp it to Bo Jackson just as the part of Bo Jackson's baseball job that was the same as Otani's, right? That would Mm -hmm. be odd because there are so many. There's so many. The thing that makes those guys remotely... Related to one another is the duality of their role, granted, as we've noted, across different sports. So I think it has to be that what Otani is attempting is less difficult than playing two discrete sports. And that is my argument. That is what I am arguing against. I do not think that it is more difficult than playing across two discrete sports. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. Mm, would I agree with what, that? I'm not sure I agree with it either, to be honest. I'm trying to decide if I agree with it because on the one hand, I think that they are both incredibly difficult tasks and I think pitching is just like a great miracle and it's insane that anyone does it, just a truly wild endeavor and pursuit. And I think it's truly wild that anyone ever hits a baseball. Both of those things are just loopy. But to achieve a level of excellence in two sports simultaneously to such a degree that you can play both professionally is also really, really quite difficult. There is a reason that apart from the money, although the money was a big part of the reason, there is a reason I would imagine that Kyler Murray was like, I'm just going to focus on the one thing because I can excel at the one thing and I can be uh, more competitively compensated right away for the one thing and the odds of me getting injured in the one thing or the other thing and then not being able to do either thing are high. And so I should just focus on the one thing. It's hard It's hard to do and be expert in multiple things. You know, we all made fun of 
of, uh, of the Dodgers when we learned that one of their spreadsheets was like named crimes. Because that's silly in an obvious way. But also being good at like constituting a baseball team and naming stuff, those are different skills. It's hard to be good at a lot of different things. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They are not clever <laughs> tab namers. That's not what they're hired for. They weren't selected for their ability to name a tab. No, they were like, they were selected for their ability to constitute a baseball team. No, but I mean, obviously you're right. It's very difficult to do both and that's why. But it's just as difficult. Like the Kyler Murray example that he chose to focus on just one because it's really hard to play two is like, that's true. That's the premise of like this being rare and and amazing and why we love them. But that also applies to pitchers and hitters who choose to specialize in one rather than try to become professionals in two and it is just as rare and there are just as many examples of pitchers who gave up hitting at some point along their development rather than you know try this extremely unlikely and unrealistic and difficult to master and labor intensive pursuit that Otani has been doing so how do we know which one is I mean to me the question is which has more overlap because the whole like what we are rewarding here is that you do two different things, right? These are two different circles. But of right. course, of course, all sports share some quality. Like there is Venn diagram overlap of all sports. I mean, right. Mike Trout hit the golf ball over oh the net, gosh. right? Like Mike Trout is a great athlete and therefore it is fun to watch him hit golf balls. He is not a great golfer he's not like that he's not a professional golfer and yet because he's a great athlete he can do all great athlete things there is some venn diagram overlap between being mike trout in baseball and also being you know able to hit a golf ball a long way and all sports have some overlap with all other sports i think it is fair to say that every physical sport Every kind of like, I mean, it depends where we're drawing the line on sport, right? Like, right. Uh, there's probably actually some overlap between esports and regular, right? Regular. I'm sorry. I feel really bad that I just did that. Traditional. I need sports. a better. Thank you. I needed a better adjective than I came up with. Traditional sports. Traditional sports. Athletic sports. Can we say that? Physical uh, sports. On on a field sports. On a field sports. So there's some overlap on a between surface sports. Exactly. All right. There's some overlap between esports and and all of those sports as well. And so the question that Barclays kind of forcing us to to answer with this with the Otani versus Bo Jackson comparison is which two sports or which two pursuits share the least overlap. And so my question is, do football and baseball have more overlap or do pitching and hitting have more overlap? And so that's the question. And I can sort of, I I mean, I don't have a way of measuring it, but like, I, I think you can wander around that question a little bit and some things emerge. So can I introduce a a thing for us to contend with to help us try to answer this question? I don't know that it will, but we can try. Mm -hmm. So you are uh, familiar, Sam, with the phenomena of, you know, of like, say, young, projectable prospects who are are position player prospects who maybe have not excellent bat-to-ball skills, but a lot of arm strength. And a thing that scouts will say is, well, you should just put them on the mound. Totally. just put that kid on the mound. Look at yeah. that arm strength. Just put that kid on the mound. When when the Pirates are trying to decide what to do with O'Neill Cruz, who is six seven and plays shortstop, there were a lot of scouts who were like, shouldn't that kid just be on the mound? Because look at him. Really? They did? 
Yeah, I mean they were they didn't end up winning, and now he's. Oh, I see. They were in the there past. Were guy, saying that. There were there were scouts who were like, shouldn't he maybe be on the mound? Like, look at this guy and look at the arm strength. He should put him on the mound. Yeah, there were some scouts who said that, and they didn't end up getting their way. And I don't even know if they were like within the org, but there were scouts that were like mm, six seven. You know, that's hard when you're shortstop. So I wonder if that's a data point in the favor of baseball and football having less in common because Mm -hmm. one of the base athletic skills is such that people with familiarity with baseball and that set of athletic skills who aren't able to do the one hitting thing super well it's like well this is transferable to maybe pitching and they have them give it a shot and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't you know yeah it's a great point i don't know if it's a great point but it is a point it's interesting because it almost always goes that direction, right? It almost yes. always goes a hitter is a hitter, and then someone says, well, why not put him on the mound? He's not hitting well enough. Very mm-hmm. rarely the the other way. Right. And I wonder if that's because pitching is simply a very simple skill that you don't need to have. You don't even really need a lot of training. Like You don't need 25 years of experience to become a pitcher. You don't need to have – like you you have to master – like I mean, you need, you need to master – you need to master feel – and command and things like that but really it's like one act over and over and over again it's not like learning a a playbook and it's not like developing pattern recognition over the course of decades and so maybe the reason that Otani is not Bo Jackson is because what Otani is doing on the mound is actually very simple not quite kicker simple but pretty simple maybe maybe I don't know maybe cornerback simple is cornerback cornerback feels like a pretty simple position simpler than many others i mean like simpler than quarterback how about what's, simpler what is, than middle linebacker probably what is okay i'm not i'm gonna get i'm gonna get myself in way too deep trying yeah, to figure out we're what both the, gonna the we're both is. gonna wade into waters that we end up feeling nervous about when this episode goes to get edited. <laughs> but maybe pitching is simply too similar i do wonder whether the reason whether the reason that batters and pitchers sometimes can cross that bridge and go into the other category is because they do have a lot of experience like growing up because these two positions these two roles do take place on the same field Mm -hmm. and you have to you know you have them both on the same team and you might have the chance as a precocious athlete to do both of them a lot because you're such a better athlete than your peers you have familiarity with it and also you have like the coaches are right there. It's all very close. Like if we separated pitching and hitting into separate sports and they did not co-mingle with each other, mm-hmm. I don't know how many 25-year-old hitters would suddenly become major league pitchers or vice versa, the way that we do see in real life, just because they wouldn't be as close to each other. They wouldn't be like uh, culturally aligned in the way they are. So I, I you've, I don't know. You've, you've what been, is, but how would they be different Maybe I think maybe the answer to this is to simply reject our assumed premise in the in the comparison and to say they're both very hard and they're hard in different ways such that while there is a lot of they're similarly difficult, they can't really be compared to one another. Because I think part of the difficulty of switching between football and any other sport is even 
Uh, am I going to regret saying this? Because it's not like pitchers are healthy very much. But I guess like the the threat of catastrophic injury is so high in football. But sometimes your arm just blows out and then you're like... But then you're showing Otani, you can still hit. Can I suggest that maybe the key thing is that baseball... The, the A key detail here is that baseball hitters and baseball pitchers tend to have similar bodies whereas football players don't tend to have similar bodies to other sports and yes. basketball players don't tend to have similar bodies to other sports. And in fact, a lot of sports have very specialized body types, either large or small or lithe or or girthy or whatever. And so the fact that pitching and hitting tend to be associated with fairly similar body types is part of what makes it very easy for a person to do both, even though it is not obviously easy for a person to do both because right. you have to be, you know, 90, well, like literally 99.999999th percentile, I believe, in each of them, which is very unlikely, but you can do it. Whereas like, I don't think there is, there are very few people who are, who can be strong enough to play football at an NFL level, like with the that body type, while also maybe, I don't know, flexible enough or fast enough or I don't know what it takes to be a baseball player. And then there's, so there's basically no basketball players. I mean, there are a few, but there are very few basketball players that have a body that could succeed in football or baseball. And so right. it becomes hard to, to intermingle. So Well, and this was part of the concern with Murray from a football perspective is that he is little mm-hmm. uh, for football. And he isn't just not super tall, although he is not super tall. He is slight in a way that has been at times concerning to football observers because he just doesn't look like a dude who can take a bunch of hits and he's playing behind a somewhat questionable offensive line so people have have had this concern right whereas you look at him and you're like well that could that guy could play the outfield that's fine do you find yourself generally overestimating or underestimating Bo Jackson's career production before you go to his player page well, I've, I mean, I've just been to it so many so times. So many times that this doesn't I've, happen I've, to you anymore. Right. I've, I mean, I, he wasn't very good and I'm, I'm always so, somewhat surprised by how not very good he was because, you know, people act like he was much better. I mean, Brian Jordan was a much better baseball player is my recollection, but not the same cultural force. Yeah. That might be true. I think it's one of those things where, I hope this doesn't betray something weird about my brain, because he played football and football is a game of like intense regular action, for some reason, I think I have his his like general level of production reasonably pegged, but I always picture him, even though like I don't have a good reason for this. I think because of the football thing, I just like assumed he'd be a better defender than he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael, but Michael Jordan was a good defender, they say. But a lot of that war is really propped up by the bat, yeah. which again, like it's not. People don't like it when you say that though. So <laughs> no one's, no one's having fun when you talk about how prosaic Bo Jackson was. In no, fact, <laughs> I mean, like, here's the thing about it. Great fun. Great fun. Yeah. Wow, Bo Jackson's 57. Good gravy. Uh, so in conclusion, then, Charles Barkley said, do not compare Otani to Bo Jackson. I would say, do compare Otani to Bo Jackson, but conclude that he comes up just short. But, okay. that, but that it is the appropriate comparison to make. That Otani, what Otani is doing and what Bo Jackson is doing 
are in the same category can be compared, but that probably Otani is doing something a little bit easier and thus far not quite as well. That's where I would land, I think. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Good, thank I you. think that that's a reasonable, I think that's reasonable. I'm not offended by that answer. All right. To your own email. <laughs> email too. Oh, I've gotten another email you from have. another Sam Miller. <laughs> this weekend, my family spent a bunch of time talking about what we would do if we knew it was our last week of living. While this conversation spun off into many directions, I got to wondering about something I think about a lot when it comes to my mortality, which baseball storylines I would never get to see the end of. So here's my question. If you knew that you would never get to see the 2020 season, but a mysterious stranger could tell you any three things you want to know about what happens in the 2020 season, what three things would you want to know? These can be objective or subjective, but subjective questions will be answered only from the perspective of the mysterious stranger. The mysterious stranger is, for some reason, Jeremy Giambi. (laughs) This is another good question, another smart Sam. I love this question, (laughs) but I don't have any sort of answer for it. I am interested to hear if you have any answer for this. And I think if you do, then you might convince me of a lot of things. My first thought was like, oh, there'd be so many things. And then my second thought was, actually, would I really care about any of it? (laughs) Like, is there (laughs) anything at all? And I think you could even expand. Maybe maybe we will come up blank on on one year storylines that are so important that we need to to know them and go beyond that to like 20 year storylines mm-hmm. but in the one year like what okay so give it a shot so a couple of things come immediately to mind the first of which is i would like to know i'd like to know what kind of baseball 2020 saw oh yeah that's such a great one. Oh, yes I'd like to know what kind of baseball 2020 ended up seeing. How long do we think we live in 2020? Like in this hypothetical, when yeah. is your end date? Well, I mean, we were. This was a one-week discussion okay. that that we were having in our house. So, so I we got say. to. So we get to see like the beginning. Like we get to see opening day, maybe. No, no, no. A week from now. Oh gosh! Wow. Okay. Well, so I'm trying to decide if that changes my answer. Why would it change my answer? Why would you want to? I agree that what the ball is is really feels like an important thing to know. But why? Why do you want to know? What do you care? <laughs> why do you care? Because do you need to know? Do you need to know every ball for the rest of time, or is it just this one year? And then if they tell you it's juiced, then what have you learned? <laughs> what is, what sure. you, what can you take with you into the afterlife with that knowledge? Sure. So I think that the reason it's interesting to me is because, like, I think that if Arrested Development were being rewritten as a baseball comedy, the the commissioner's inability, I should say the league's, but he is the face of the league, the the league's inability to control the baseball would be like a central plot point to, to the baseball version of Arrested Development. There is something about it that I find so deeply funny and troubling simultaneously because it is just like the single most important piece of equipment on the field. And yeah, we've had variation in the past and things have moved around, but it feels like things that were stable spun wildly out of control and then were talked about in the goofiest possible way 
And now I want to know. I want to know if the decision, decision is probably more active than is accurate, but we're going to go with it because I only have a week to live. If after the last season and the response to the last season and all the appropriate public analysis of it and then and then public hand-wringing and fussiness and sassiness at times on the league's part. If their decision after all of that was to say, let's maintain the status quo so that like people get used to a new normal, or if they decide to go fast in the opposite direction. So I just think that it says, it would say a something about a deeply goofy and disturbing plotline in our sports history. And I think it's the sort of thing where like, the 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 commissioner has to be very bummed about the whole Astros banging scheme because he seems keen to talk about just really anything else at all. But he also probably on some level is grateful because I think that we would have ended up talking about the ball a lot this winter had we not had this much at times literally louder distraction. And so I don't know. I just I just want to I want to know. About yeah, it. does it? Your answer to the, your extended answer implies that you sort of see agency in whatever happens this year. That if it's that 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 whatever happens in twenty twenty is to some degree at the hand of the commissioner's office. Do you think that's true? And do you feel that way about what happened to the twenty nineteen and previous baseballs? I don't know. I want to be careful. You want to be careful? That implies that you have some knowledge. No, no, no. I have no knowledge. Oh, gosh, no. So then if you have no knowledge, you can say whatever you want. Like No, but I don't want to, like, I don't want to... I, I just I, I, I appreciate the uh, the wanting to be responsible, but I feel like if you say I have no idea, everything that I say is no better than a I have no idea, but opinion. it seems very silly that when you own part of the company that makes the ball... And it's really important that the ball be reasonably consistent that you can't sort that out. Mm. Like once, I think that part of baseball's problem just as a sport right now is that we've started to be able to do and measure things with such precision and such small moments in time that once we stop being able to do things that seem simpler than that, it's very easy to assume that there's some, you know, nefarious intent and control at play. Because, like, once you can measure the precise number of rotations the ball takes in a minute, it feels really silly that you can't then make that ball pretty consistent year to year and even game to game. And so I think that baseball like got really smart and now that baseball is really smart when something goofy happens it's very easy to think that there's something's fishy some there's fishiness afoot that's what I think. Mm, okay. You notice how I didn't actually answer your question. No, but I'm, I think I heard I think I heard what I needed to hear. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so that's one. Oh gosh, that's one. I would like to know, you tell me if this if this is cheating, if this is like an Aladdin when Aladdin cons the genie into getting him out of the cave by insulting his capabilities and he didn't wish it. I never, I never said. No. I never said it. So you tell me if this is cheating. I want to know both whether the Astros reach the World Series and then the reaction to the outcome of that World Series. I want to know about that. Is that cheating? 
Well. How many hmm. things am I allowed to pick? Oh, three, three things. Oh, three. see, this is a lot like the wishes. I'm going to give it to you. Okay. I'm giving, I'm giving it to you. They're very closely related. Well, you could. I think you could phrase it like this. You could say, what is the reaction to the Astros World Series victory? There you go. And then, and then the person would go, aha, there was no World Series victory. And, and you, you, would, you would know. And otherwise, you'd yeah. find out. Yeah. And I would love to hear Jeremy Giambi tell me about that. Okay. I would be interested. I think I have two Astros ones. One is that I would be interested. I don't think that the Astros hitters are all going to be worse this year. I don't think that's going to happen. I would be interested to know, though, for sure. And so I would probably ask, like, how many Astros underperformed their projections or something? Like, I'd phrase it better than that. I'd find a better question than that. But I would want to know, did they get worse? Did the Astros get worse? So that's one Astros-related one. The other one is I I would like to know. I have an expectation that the Astros are going to be very good this year. Mm -hmm. And that as they stay very good... They are going to get more humble and apologetic about 2017. Interesting. Once they have established that they are truly good, I think that will make it easier for them to feel less threatened by what the banging schemes revelation might say about them. Like right now, I think they're all like they're apologetic, but they're also a little defensive. Mm -hmm. They don't want to admit they don't want to give in to this suspicion that maybe the Astros aren't actually good. So they've kind of dug in a little bit and they're like, no, we are good. And I think once further events seem to validate them, they will be able to say, all right, you guys are right. Now that we all know that we're really good, we can be a little bit more humble about all this and admit that it was as bad as you think and we really regret it and we feel sad. And I think that that message maybe will get is totally, totally speculative, but that message will maybe get a little bit more sincere as the season goes on. And I don't know how I would ask that, but I would like to know, yeah, kind of along the lines of yours, I would like to know the state of the Astros' healness mm-hmm. as the year goes on. I would like to have maybe just some resolution. I mean, we're all, we all have strong emotions about these people right now based on the, the drama that's being laid out and so maybe i would just like to know uh, how i'm supposed to feel <laughs> you know yeah how, do, how does everybody feel about the astros in november is maybe that's a tough one to, to answer especially someone like jeremy giambi yeah but how what what is the general feeling about the astros so yeah i'm along i'm along with you on that one what is the reaction to them winning the world series yeah, I just, and I, I'm curious, this is, I don't know that I would um, waste a, a thing on this, but I I got a question about this in my chat this week about how how long fans are going to be able to, opposing fans, I should say, are going to be able to maintain their frustration with this team and how long they will act upon that frustration by booing or bringing signs or otherwise engaging in public in expressions of dissatisfaction with the Astros. And I said in my chat that I think it really depends on when in the season it is and sort of what the state of the team is at the time. I think that if they start really strong or if they are just slow out of the gate and, you know, maybe lose five of their first 10 or whatever, people are going to take that as license to either think that they are still cheating and so be angry or that they were only good because they were cheating and then be kind of petty about it. But beyond the initial sort of flush of recognition in the beginning part of the season, I don't, I think it's a lot harder to 
to say because I don't think that we are particularly good at emotional stamina when the thing we're reacting to is sort of even keeled. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But like if they are really, really good and then at the deadline they like make a big trade and then they're even better – then we're going to get it again. Or if, uh, you know, they go into the last month of the season and they're jockeying for, you know, home field advantage throughout the playoffs, we're going to get it again because then we're going to be worried about them cheating at home. And so I'm just really curious, like, what the commitment level is going to be and what is going to be motivating that commitment if it's going to be something on the field or if it's going to continue to be reacting to prior bad acts. So I don't know. I'm just curious how people are going to like, you know, they're going to, they're going to go to opposing cities. They're going to have a day off in, in an opposing city sometime. And, you know, Jose Altuve is going to go get coffee. How are people going to be in the coffee shop to him? I don't know. Yeah. I'm curious yeah. about that. Like, don't heckle yeah. people on the street is probably what I would say. But um, I'm curious. Like, is somebody going to come up to him and say, boo, or, like, take their coffee lid and bang on it? Yeah, you know, I I don't think I would use one of my questions on this, but I probably the thing that I feel the most suspense about, I hadn't really thought about it yet uh, before this, but the thing I maybe feel the most suspense about this year or the most tension or the most, like, sort of nervousness about is will an Astro get hurt? Yeah. because of this will an yeah. astro actually be injured and presumably by you know nick markakis uh but but who like a lot of the a lot of people are mad right and will i and, and i don't i don't want them to and i don't want to i don't think that if i were preparing for my life to be over i don't think one of the last things i would want to learn yeah. is like someone hurt the astros man like, i forgot about the stakes of this thing. question for a second <laughs> But I am kind of curious uh, to know, will an Astro be, I don't know, in any way actually like assaulted this year? Yeah. Although some people think that it's already happened in spring training, not hurt, but assaulted. Yeah. Although I, I, I don't know. I have not looked into the hit-by-pitch data that closely, but my understanding is that it's not very convincing, but I might be wrong. All right. So you've chosen, how does the ball play and how, do the, how does the world respond to the Astros winning the World Series if they do? Yeah. And do you have a third? I want to know what Chris Davis's average is. Okay, you we're still we still care. Does it? No, can, I don't. I don't. I take it back. I don't, I don't think that. I don't think I don't it would care. be okay. How interesting would it be? Scale of one to ten. Let's say that him hitting two forty seven last year would have been a ten. What would it be this year? Now that he's lo- he's totally blown it. That's like a two. I think it would still be kind of cool if he found his way really? back to 47. It'd be a little bit like Nemo, you know, getting back to his to his dad. Oh, I guess that's true. But not nearly. I think like it'd be like a seven or an eight. I mean, it would, in a way, it would almost be weirder if he left it for a long time, traveled sure. the world, wandered around, and came back to 247. Yeah. It'd be like, yeah, I mean, it'd be like that. The homing, homing mechanism on that would be very strong, but not as cool. Yeah. I think I've thought of three. I think I have settled on three, including me, one that I've already said. Give me your other two, okay. and maybe I'll so, come up with a third. So, one will the Astros get worse? Yeah. Is one. How does Clayton Kershaw do in the postseason? Oh yeah. It would be nice for your last, your one of your last living thoughts to be satisfaction about Clayton Kershaw's postseason. Yeah. You don't know if it's final, and you might just be told, "Oh, he got blown out in the division series, and that was that." Although in finding this out, you would also know how deep the Dodgers went, so you might yeah. sneak. You might sneak in who won the World Series. Like you might discover that roundabout. 
And the third thing, this is very small, and I, I don't expect anybody to nod vigorously with it, but I'm going to say I would like to know the wars of all the White Sox starting pitchers. Oh. Because I feel like there are in Giolito, in Dylan Cease, in Lopez, and in Michael Kopech, we have mm -hmm. four long-time storylines, four you know pitchers who we've seen rise and fall in various ways four pitchers whose futures could be you know virtually anything at this point and uh i since they're all bundled up nicely there for me i feel like it's uh it's it's a fitting thing to ask yeah yeah i like that i don't think i have a third one i don't care about gio gonzalez <laughs> war just for the record <laughs> What's a third one? I think that my third one probably would have something to do with how Mookie Betts performs. Mm -hmm. But that feels kind of petty. It feels like I'm using one of my last wishes and thoughts on Earth to like stick it to a model of baseball team construction that I don't care for. And like that's, you know, that's a thing to do, I guess, before you go. But I don't know if that's one of the things, like the last things I want to spend. You're, you're not, I, mean, I guess it's a bummer because the Mariners have no suspense. So there's no point no. In, in asking. Are you, you, you can find out how Jeff's team did. Do you care? <sighs> do you could find out how Jeff did? You could just find out like. Aww. How's Jeff doing? How's my, how are my buddies? Yeah. Maybe I'd, uh, you know what? I'd like to know what Felix's war is. Oh, okay. There's Good an luck. optimism in saying he has one. That might kill you. That might be well, how you died. Well, <laughs> Finding it out. I'd be going out thinking about a thing I love, so there you go. All right. I'm going to do a stat blast. Stat blast. Stat blast. Okay. They'll take a data set sorted by something like ERA minus or OBS plus And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length and analyze it for us in amazing ways Here's today's Starblast So the other day I was looking at Gary Templeton's career and Gary Templeton, he won a silver slugger. He won two silver sluggers. And I remember Gary Templeton being a pretty good hitter. I remember his baseball card had some bold ink and sure enough, you know, when he won his first silver slugger, he was a pretty good hitter. In fact, he led the league in triples three years in a row in his early 20s. Then after that, they invented the silver slugger. He won the first one at shortstop. But then he won it again four years later and he hit that year. 258, 312, 320, which is a 633 OPS, which is a 79 OPS plus. He won the Silver Slugger Award with a 79 OPS plus. Now, I thought that was outlandish, and yeah. this got me wondering a, a few things. And, and while wondering this, I did sort of get steered to a Reddit thread oh, on yeah. what is the worst, who was the worst player ever to win an award? Which mm. is, uh, I think, uh, I don't think they mean the worst player. I think they mean the worst performance to ever win an award. Sure. And in parentheses, they put gold glove, silver slugger, Cy Young, etc. And there are 356 comments. But 
like essentially no mention of any silver slugger in this whole thing like there hmm. there's a lot to talk about mvps and cy youngs but basically silver slugger awards no matter how bad they are they don't really get they don't get mentioned i think the only mention in here actually is someone saying that dj lemay 2016 silver slugger and <laughs> dj lemay that year was like incredible he won the batting title he had a you know i think he was the best hitting shortstop in baseball or in the national league that year i don't know why the person's so mad about it but anyway oh and did also didn't win the silver slugger so (laughs) uh maybe that's what he's complaining about so it's someone else good won it anyway doesn't matter so then i wondered is gary templeton the worst player to win an award so the way that i looked at this was obviously a shortstop it's not fair to say, well, this player had a bad hitting line because maybe he's a catcher or a shortstop or, for that matter, a pitcher, Mm -hmm. and he's being compared to others at his position. And so, you know, you don't, like, have to be as good a hitter as a shortstop to win a Silver Slugger award. So what I did is I compared each hitter's adjusted OPS to the adjusted OPS of all players at their position that year and i wanted to see whether there was anybody who was worse than their positions average and i'm gonna first tell you gary templeton was not worse than the average shortstop that year he had a 633 ops but nl shortstops in 1984 were really really bad and if you look at it he wasn't that outrageous of a pick in fact there really wasn't a bet there was a better shortstop there were a couple of shortstops that you would have picked over him but nobody who had kind of played as much and there were like low batting averages and even the ones who who hit better than him had low batting averages so gary templeton is a worthy answer to this but not the answer i wanted to see if there's anybody who's actually worse than the average player at their position and so i found four players not counting pitchers four players who were worse than average at their position so they were silver slugger they're only going up against other people at their position and yet they somehow managed to win the award despite being worse than the average person at their position which suggests that they were probably a lot worse than the best at their position so fourth one the the best of the four is pete rose who in 1981 won the silver slugger award at first base despite having how many home runs do you think i don't know I don't know. You're clicking. What are you clicking? Nothing. You can't click when you're thinking of an answer. That (laughs) makes me think that you're clicking to find the answer. It's zero. He had zero home runs. He didn't hit any, Sam. He was zero. He slugged. He he slugged with a bat literally made out of silver. It was so hard to hit with that he could not get enough bat speed to hit a home run. He hit zero home runs. But... He wasn't actually all that that bad. He was a lot worse than other first basemen in the league that year. His but he was a 118 OPS plus. The league average was like 119 or like 118 plus some decimals. Keith Hernandez that year should have won. He had a 142 OPS plus, but he also didn't have that much power and Pete Rose had a better batting average. Pedro Guerrero was better that year, but he didn't have that much power and Pete Rose had a better batting average. Bill Buckner never had that much power, and Pete Rose had a slightly better batting average. And the power hitter of the group was Dave Kingman, who had 22 homers, but was not very good overall. So you could sort of imagine with 1981 sophistication coming to the conclusion that Pete Rose, who did hit 325 and did have 391 on base percentage, was worth commemorating. 
part of the, he was worse than the league average that year, partly because it was a very good year for hitting first baseman. All right, but still, Pete Rose, that's one. Number two is Jose Canseco, who won the Silver Slugger Award as a DH in 1998, despite having an on-base percentage of 318. Edgar Martinez was a DH that year. Yeah. And he he led the league in on-base percentage yeah. with 429. Yeah. I have no idea. I do know how Jose Canseco won this. The answer is that he hit 46 home runs, and that's it. That's the entire thing. He hit 46 home runs. He was a 237, 318, 518 hitter that year. He led the league in strikeouts. Edgar Martinez, meanwhile, hit 322, 429, 565. Led the league in on-base percentage and had a 993 OPS and a 158 OPS+. plus. Eric Davis was very good that year with a 151 OPS+. plus. Tim Salmon was very good that year. Daryl Strawberry was very good that year, although did not play the full year. Matt Stairs had his best year that year. Would have been a much more worthy player. Jose Canseco finished 11th out of 15 DHs that year in adjusted OPS. But he hit 46 home runs. Nobody else hit 30. And to win a silver slugger, everyone knows that you it's all home runs or else it's the player who hits zero home runs. It's one of those two things. It's either zero home runs at a hitting position or 46 home runs. Those are the two ways you win a silver slugger award. So Jose Canseco, number three is Carlos Lee, who was an outfielder. Now, they don't split outfielder up. And so Lee, okay. Lee benefits too because he's he's being compared against all outfielders for this exercise, including center fielders. But even with that, the left fielder, Carlos Lee, finished 24th in OPS Plus among National League outfielders. He won the award. In fact, 10 players that year, 10 outfielders in the National League, played full seasons and had higher batting average, on-base percentage, and slugging percentage than Carlos Lee. They beat him in all three, 10 of them. I don't know what you're looking at, but apparently Carlos Lee had it. He led the league in sacrifice flies. That could be it. Otherwise, he didn't it? do it. It doesn't make any sense. So Miguel Cabrera won the other one of the other ones. And Andrew Jones, who, that was his MVP year, yeah. led the league in home runs. He won the other one. But like Ken Griffey Jr. had a higher everything than Carlos Lee and also hit more home runs than him. I guess it's RBIs, but like Jason Bay, Jason Bay, holy cow, yeah. 306, 402, 559, he hit 32 home runs. He was fantastic. Stole 21 bases and only got caught once. Give him the award. There's a lot of players here who should have gotten it over Carlos Lee, but Carlos Lee got it 24th in the National League in adjusted OPS among outfielders. But the very worst of these is Benito Santiago, who's adjusted OPS was only 90% as high as the league average. Oh, so he's boy. by far the furthest away from the league average. He hit 248, 282, so 282 on base percentage, 362 as a catcher in 1988. He won the award. And truthfully, there is not a attractive candidate here. There are better candidates, but there is not a attractive one. Alan Ashby was the only catcher in the National League who was above average as a hitter that year, and he only played 73 games. Mike Lavalier had the best on-pace percentage of any of them, but he only hit two home runs. And then you've got Tony Pena had a very similar year to Benito Santiago, but a little less power and a little more on-base. Anyway, Santiago shouldn't have won it, did win it. Worst award winner ever, whatever that Reddit question said. He's the worst, Benito Santiago. There you go. So that's the stat class. All right. Should we do one more quick one? Sure. 
All right, quick one. I have sent it to you. Sam, it hasn't come through. Well, it will. I mean, it's it's only one edit. Either way, whether we have to wait for thirty seconds or forty-five seconds, it's just one edit. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I'm. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I'm stalling so I can look at the election results. It came. This is very short. Do you boo umpires? Because I imagine that you're not generally a booer. Like you don't probably boo a lot of players just because you're you're mad at them or they failed. Yeah, no. And so yet with umpires, are you? Do you boo an umpire that you're mad at and or who failed? I have both for reasons professional and because I worry greatly about how it makes other human beings feel have tried to just like stop booing in a baseball context generally Mm -hmm. i don't know if i've told this story on this podcast before so if i have forgive me but i went to a a game a couple years back with a friend of mine who was a a team employee and he got us some very nice seats not right behind home plate but you know like nice behind home seats and he was wearing his team badge he was wearing his credentials and i was there as a civilian like i you know i wasn't working i drank a beer so i was just there hanging out but also i'm sitting next to my friend who had you know team identification on and uh it was late in the game it was a close game And uh, the team that I preferred was up to bat. And, you know, the home plate ump did not ask for help from from the, the first base umpire on whether or not the batter had checked his swing. This was on the first swing. And then my friend could tell I was getting agitated by that because we have talked about this. Like, you should just ask for help. Just ask for help. They don't get overruled very often. Uh, they agree. Generally, it goes around all the time, does the hand. But, like, ask for help. You should ask for help from a person who has a better vantage. Did not do that. So I got frustrated, and my friend had a nervous look. And so I thought about booing, and instead I yelled, ask for help. And then batter went again and I thought checked his swing although admittedly I was not at a good vantage to know and so then the home plate umpire did appeal down and the first base ump signaled that he had gone around and I yelled be a better helper (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and my friend looked less stressed after that because I think that he was thinking that that one beer had done a great deal more work than one beer should and that I was going to be sassy and embarrass him. But I just encouraged people to ask for help in professional settings. And that's a lesson we teach kids like really early. So I think it ended up being fine. I don't really boo umps that often, like in a serious way. Sometimes when everyone in a ballpark is booing, especially when fans are booing because they don't like close calls on sort of called strikes where they can't visualize the strike zone. And so they're booing, but they don't know if it was a good call or not. They just don't know. They can't see it, but they're going to boo anyway because they want to stand up for their guys sometimes i will boo in like a in like a mocking way but not very loud in case the umpire can hear it i think that i will not boo at all once the robo umps come even for moments that have nothing to do with calling the strike zone because i find it just like horrifying that we are going to take away this most important part of an umpire's job and then ask them to sweep up the plate I just find it awful. I think it's cruel. So I'm not going to boo then at all, just like 
because I feel really bad for, uh, I feel bad. I'm going to feel bad about it. I think that we read umpires as not as judges, but like as cops who are there to like bust up a party. And mm. so that's why people feel comfortable doing it, yeah. even though it's a really hard job and they actually do it incredibly well considering how difficult it is. But they don't read as judges in like a dignified way to us. I wonder if it's because their tummies end up looking kind of sweaty. When it's really hot, and so they don't seem distinguished. <laughs> I do not notice the sweaty. You will notice it forever but, now because what happened? But the ball players are sweating like, like. Yeah, but they're the problem is that the umps wear. You know, it's a washed out black, and so the and it's not it's not wicking. It's not a sporting material in quite the same oh, way that like a uniform is. Come on, nobody is uglier than I don't even I don't want to name a particular pitcher, but nobody is uglier than a sweaty pitcher. Right, but nobody but what, wears their sweat worse, I should say, than what, a sweaty pitcher. But what happens? What happens with umpires is that you know they have to like home plate umps. You know they have to crouch down, and they have um, they have you know human stomachs, uh, various um, <laughs> sizes, and when it's really hot, what'll happen is their warm tummies. <laughs> What, what? Lie, on their, lie on their, uh, you know, they bend over and they, they make the fronts of their pants. I do not accept this at all. I think, I do not accept that there is a, a uh, It makes them look like they they peed their pants, Sam. I do not believe that we are booing them because we are mad they're unathletic. <laughs> no, is, no, no, I do no, not I don't... accept this theory. <laughs> no, no, I think it, it's not that they're unathletic, it's that they're not distinguished. <laughs> Like, if they stood back there and wore, like, a wig, like, you know, judges do in English courts, I think we oh, should yeah. look at them. No, there's, everyone knows Americans love an English judge. Hey, man, that's like, they're, they're, you know, they have a whole cheering section predicated on this in the Bronx, even though they have them, they have a lot of them, and they look like they're sitting in a jury box, so that part doesn't make any sense. I guess I just want there to be some integrity and in legal metaphors, but... I think because <laughs> there's what he laughs. I don't have a good. Re- I don't. I don't have a good take on whether I should be booing umpires. Before I sent this question, I had not really thought that much about it, and I think I have traditionally booed umpires. Although now I don't care about anything enough sure. to yell. Like in life, I've just run out of emotion. But if I had to guess, I, I think that the key detail why we somehow are comfortable booing umps, but you know, generally frown upon booing players because we we know it hurts players, is that. We see the players booing umps. Like they're constantly, oh, yeah. they're, they're not booing, they're not going boo, but they are constantly yelling at how bad the ump is doing. Yeah. It's just a running thing. And whereas nobody's yelling at players on the field telling them how bad they are, like it is not part of the game to yell at players, like at either opposing players or like for the umpire to yell at the players and go, ah, you failed. Why are you failing all the time? You failed again. No one does that to players. They're very, very supportive. And so we just get this message that that the players are trying hard and need our support and the umpires are awful and everyone should hate them. And it comes from the dugouts, I think. Yeah, I think that the dugouts are a really big part of it. I think that that's like, that's like 99% of it. But I think that the part of it that isn't that is the sweaty laps. Like you should, you should. Uh, oh, I sent this to the wrong thing. Like uh, I just, I just sent you a piece that I wrote about a Red Sox oh, Royals game from of August. This, this, this is like a great, fantastic article. I tweeted this article. I love oh, this article. Well, yeah. you, you were very kind to read it before it went to print, and you, you gave very helpful suggestions. But like, look at his sweaty lap. 
It's almost making a face. This one looks less like he peed his pants and more like there's a face. Boy, this, I just do not think that the average fan... <laughs> do you mean to tell me that I noticed a thing that is not relatable to the common baseball experience and then put it in an article? You just knocked me over with that. We don't talk enough about how there's a human being whose last name is Love Lady who pitches professional baseball innings. We should talk about that every day. I think if we knew how much the umpires were sweating, we would boo them a lot less. Oh, that's such an optimistic view of humans. I like that. That's good. They ought to. In fact, that's what they ought to do. They ought to really ham it up. They ought to like constantly just be like acting, like slouching and talking about how hot it is, and complaining. I don't think we'll like them more, but I think that we would just be like, oh, just let them be. Yeah. They are, look at that. Look, look at that guy. He's sweaty all over. All right. Well, we did it. We didn't. We didn't infringe on any copyrights. I'm so we, relieved. We made our own content. Yeah, we did. We did a good job. Ben got to be on vacation. We will be back later on in this week with an episode doing a team preview with the Red Sox and the Giants. So people should look out for that. But hey, Sam, thanks for hanging out and writing emails to yourself. All right. Well, until I wrote them to you. I'll t- uh, yeah, I'll talk to you later this week. Sounds good. All right, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get access to a few special perks along the way. Alex Parker, Christian Ruzik, sorry Christian, Patrick Michaels, Bobby, that's just Bobby, and now I only want to triumph. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your actual questions and comments for me, Sam, and Ben coming via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. We promise to respond to a few real listener emails soon. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing editing assistance. Mm, Might want to edit that, Dylan. Sam and I will be back with another season preview pod a little later this week. Until then, have a great week and remember to wash your hands.